This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. So good to see you. We're like one degree away from each other, and I love it. Yeah, likewise, <laughs> likewise. And I love your glasses. Oh, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I got to wear headphones. Okay, you can't see my earrings. <laughs> Let me just put on some lashes and some glasses. Um, yeah, so thank you for noticing. little razzle-dazzle. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, and this purple is beautiful on you. I've been staring thank at it you. from the background because lace is just a hard thing to wear sometimes. And uh-huh. it just takes a level of confidence and clarity, which we'll talk about in a minute <laughs> uh, with your book. But um, so I'm so excited to spend this time with you. And I wanted to start first by honoring your newest ancestor, the um, your aunt, yeah. who you share yes. on social media. Um, and so, you know, what I've learned about death and grief during this time is that it's one all around us. Um, but it's also, you know, grief is such a shapeshifter. And it is. Grief is also praise, I think, as well, in many ways. So I just want to invite you to say your aunt's name. And if you're moved to want to share a story about her to get us started, I invite you to do that. Yeah. So my aunt's name was um, Anne uh, Darby Hinton. um, And she was an evangelist in the in the church. I mean, I talk about the Black church in my book, um, but uh, she was an evangelist. She had a beautiful voice a beautiful voice, um, and a smile that will light up the room. I often talk about um, how I come from a legacy, a lineage of full-bodied Black women. Um, and on my dad's side of the family, like, it's thick over there. It's, it's you know, it's thick um, and, and, and heavy. And so, um, you know, growing up around um, larger-bodied women like my aunt, I mean, she had a way of being able to command the room. Um, and her presence was something that that filled spaces, um, and and you know, and she passed unexpectedly, um, and kind of like you said, grief being like a shapeshifter, and like just going back and listening to the things that she said or or the songs that she sung, it's like grief has a way of being able to pull out this sense of sadness, but also this this sense of like appreciation and being able to share a space with an individual. And so I'm kind of in that space, but she was like an awesome person. She could preach to you. She could teach to you. She could sing you, you know, out of places, under tables, around tables, you know, um, and she would do it effortly, effortlessly. And so um, definitely honoring her today and holding her close to to my heart and her memory and really thinking about the ways by which um, not just me, but also me and my sisters can kind of carry on that legacy and what we really actually house in our members that I think sometimes we don't give a whole lot of thought to until times like this happen. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because when you shared that video of her, I think it was on Twitter, um, of her singing, I was like, oh, this looks just like this book cover. Yeah. You know, she's in like that red dress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, she was yeah, just all yeah. by herself. Um, and so, you know, first of all, what a gorgeous book. I just want to like yes. acknowledge it and objectify it for a moment. Um, 
But, you know, I'm wondering also, one of my uh, questions that I always have for authors is, you know, what part did you play in guiding the image and the colors and all that feel for the book? Um, So how did you make that decision? Did you know what you wanted your book cover to look like in any way? So, you know, it's really interesting. I think like things happen so quickly for me. Some of this is like warped and maybe as I sit back and take things in, I'll remember more, but I don't remember giving them. um, So my publisher is North Atlantic Books. I don't really remember giving them outside of the information that I gave them when I first started writing a book, like this is what it's going to be framed as, you know, this is, this is kind of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pro-black lean to it, right? I'm talking about black girls. I'm talking about black women. Um, And then I just kind of left it and they said, you know, Joey, we have a cover for you. And initially, when they showed me the cover, it didn't have those little gold things in it. So the little gold noodle-looking things were. um, And I remember seeing it and, like, gasping. Like, it took my breath away. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, is that my cover? I couldn't, you know. And then I kind of, like, sent it to everybody that I knew. Like, look at this. And and then they took some feedback because I had some ideas of, like, you know, it's community. Is there a way we can put like cities or buildings or something in the back? And they were like, no, you, we could try. And then that's where the little golden noodle things came from. Um, and then they told me, they said, well, when we print the book, we'll make it textured. And I was like, okay, that's fine. So at, for, for the longest time, I think, uh, what, maybe a month ago, I actually got a physical copy of the book. So I didn't know exactly what that texture would look like and how it would be metallic. They said it would be metallic, but I was like, okay, whatever. And then um, I finally had a chance to like get the books in the mail and I unboxed it. And I was like, what is this masterpiece? Like this piece (laughs) of like beauty, right? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But North Atlantic Books, I mean, they got got an artist and illustrator to do the work and they just kind of built off of the vision of the information that I gave them. And that kind of popped out. And it kind of made me feel good. Like, I think I'm in a good place. You know, I'm working with a good group of individuals for them to capture that vision. Right. And people that are listening to you. right, And that are yeah, hearing right. the words that you're saying, which is rare. I think not just for Black women, but for fat Black women, especially in this, you know, context. Um, so congratulations for, you know having that experience because that I think is just such an affirming experience and also just a, a book that will that shines you know it's such a I'm just going to show people if they haven't seen it it's shiny it's beautiful it does, it's like it has a sensual experience for everyone who's going to grab it and so I think it's just such a thoughtful way of attracting other black women and other black people to be drawn to the book um So yeah, I'm really excited about this Um, and reading your book. I came up with several questions. So I have a few and by a few, I mean Uh like 15. Um, (laughs) So I definitely want us to like have a conversation. We might not get get to all of them. Um, And so I really want to start with the overall theme of your book, which, you know, for me, um, so I've been fat, uh, you know, I'm black Puerto Rican and I've been fat all my life to the point where people are like, you look so young. I'm like, cause I've been fat forever. Like, you know, like <laughs> that's just how it works. But, um, uh-huh. you know, for me, I know that fat black women created 
the movements that we know and understand today to be called fat acceptance. And that those Black women are often excluded from any kind of history or legacy or narrative. Um, And so what do you want to say to those who are listening in today and later on that are new to the fat acceptance movement and how to find the work of those who are often excluded so that there's a more holistic and full, fuller understanding of how we got to where we are and the labor of Black women? Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is like, um, there has to be an honor, I think, and a value to history. Um, and I think that when you honor history and when you honor stories, right? So I'm a qualitative researcher by, by, by trade, right? And so part of what I do, a lot of what I do is like sitting and listening to everybody else. Um, and it gives me an appreciation for the lived experiences of individuals that, um, you know, you may not find, uh, I don't know, you may not find, you know, Susie Q started this in 1967, right? You may not find it written like that. But if you listen to Susie Q's story, right, you can find where Susie Q was in the forefront of something. Um, and I think part of, you know, part of, of, of Black fat women being erased from this work is having an ear to hear, right? Um, part of the work that now we're doing is having the ear to hear, right? And having um, and having a heart to perceive what's actually being said and being done around us, even though it's not being explicitly written. So I think that's part of it. Um, there are some people who have kind of curated information around the history of fat acceptance. Um, and they've gone to lengths of trying to um, both parse out and add in information of people who were a part of movements that weren't that aren't typically um, typically added, right? And so, kind of like outside of like NAFA being created in the '60s um, and different things like that. And like in my work, like I often talk about Fannie Lou Hamer, who celebrated her birthday. Well, we would have celebrated her birthday yesterday, um, and kind of talking about how she stood on the forefront um, in the front lines of making sure you know food was a priority for her. Um, and she was a disabled black woman, and she you know she moved in the in the front lines of not just um, what it meant to have access, like when we, t- we talk about food deserts and different things like that, but like, you know, what it was like to have, um, access to quality foods. Um, but then, you know, just black liberation, civil rights and in general. Right. And I see her as a leader in what it means that to house all that magic that she had in the body that she had, right. And kind of move forward in those things. Um, and so I would say to those who are new to the movement, to have a value for history, right? Like this movement did not start like five years ago or when Instagram took off, right? Which a lot of people tend to think like, you know, and I have to remind people like, no, I mean, we've kind of been, fat acceptance has been around for a while. Um, so I think part of that is 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 also honoring the legacy that's coming behind you that helps you to do what you do, right? To know the shoulders of those that you've stood on. And then also, then to like really listen to the stories of individuals. Don't look in the common places, right? Because you're not going to find those people written in those stories because that's how white supremacy works. That's how oppression works. Um, and so part of this is like you being, you know, studying the craft and, and you understanding what it is that you're getting involved in and then being willing to do the legwork around that. 
Yeah. Thank you. And I think also when I hear you talk about this piece and, and your background with uh, being a qualitative researcher, and for those at home who are like, what does that word mean? Oh, uh, it yeah, means that, you know, Joy, well, go ahead, do it. <laughs> do I give well, it I mean, yeah, so I mean, part of qualitative research is that, um, you know, oftentimes when we are in these academic spaces, um, we usually separate the difference between people who are interested in numbers versus people who are interested in kind of rich data, right, or, or interested in the ways by which information is not generalized. Um, and so that's me. Right. Um, typically, when it comes to marginalized populations, you're not going to have numbers, not the way that, you know, not the way that they're defined whenever it comes to quantitative um, research. And so I'm interested in stories. I'm interested in deep, rich data, words, things that you got to sit and you got to read through and you got to parse through. History being one of those things, you know, just being able to kind of sit with information and like really pull out the essence of what people are trying to say or what's important or what stands out as opposed to changing that data into numbers and then putting an output that says 95% of this um, is that I'm like, yeah, but these these three people said something and it's really meaningful. And just because it's not a whole bunch of people doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to it. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think your book also is a contribution to the archive that Black people have in this country. And that oral narrative is definitely one of those pieces, not just of that archive, but also in the spirit of Black feminist thought and being able to theorize from our particular experiences and what that looks like, how it shifts and morphs. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about or ask you about one moment in your book where you talk about freedom and feeling free for the first time as a young, fat Black child. And you wrote that you, quote, backstroked to freedom when learning how to swim at the YMCA as a young Black girl. And what did you find liberating about the water? So this is like a four-part question. So that's the first thing. <laughs> what did you find liberating about the water? What other experiences have you had since then that have allowed you to experience such freedom? And then what are the ways that you have found collective liberation for fat Black women? So the first question, the first part is, what did you find liberating about the water? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think part of it was that one, I was weightless. Um, and then I think, you know, the other part about it was, um, there were no, there were no boundaries for me, I think in the water, like, yeah, there were like boundaries, like don't do this or you might drown type boundaries. Right. But like not boundaries around like, oh, you can't stick your leg out this way. You can't do it this way. You can't do it that way. I mean, to this day, I still don't know how I got picked for that program. Um, I just remember that, you know, half of the day would happen and I got to leave school and, um, and I got to go swim. Like that was like, that was it. Like leave school, go swim. And I had this polka dot bathing suit that my mom got from somewhere. And there was something about putting on that bathing suit I mean, I looked at myself and I was like, this bathing suit is all right. I mean, this bathing suit is sharp. It had polka dots. And I mean, I think that was part of it too. I think being able to connect myself back to childhood, right? Like I didn't have to be anything else but a kid 
learning how to swim. I didn't have to protect myself in some ways, you know, I didn't have to fight against other kids. I didn't have to watch my little sister, right? It was just a joy thing. It was a me thing. It was like something that was carved out just for me. Um, and I think I found liberation in that. Um, and I didn't have to worry about my body and I could do what everybody, I mean, we swam as kids, um, but I could do what everybody else did. And there were no barriers as it related to um, those things. So it was an opportunity for me mentally to kind of be free um, as well as, you know, within my body. And so it was really, it was nice. I mean, ah, like yeah. to be a kid again, like that moment was just like, it was so liberating for me. And I mean, I would come home and my hair would be stripped because of because <laughs> of the chlorine and, yep. and you know your hair is just whatever and I didn't care it was just like this is what life is about right and so we'll deal with the moisture later but yeah right. it was it was wonderful yeah um yeah and so you want me to just move on to the next question yeah so the next question was what other experiences have you had since then that have allowed you to mm-hmm. experience such freedom such freedom I mean, I think so. Okay. So, I I mean, well, we're all adults and I think this is kind of your lane. Um, So I think sex has been another, another, um, another space for me. Um, I kind of talk about this briefly in the book too, a little bit. Um, But I think, again, I think it's just that sense of safety and being with somebody who was like, it wasn't a thing. Like your body wasn't a thing. And like, in some ways I was like weightless. Um, and, and being able to kind of just like fade all of that stuff out. Right. And just focus on the moment or focus on the person and, and all of that. So kind of like, it brings back those same type of memories where like nothing else mattered, but that thing. And it was like, and it was, and it was a joy thing. So it was like, you know, I'm there with another person, but like their focus is on me and my focus is, is on them. And so, um, yeah, that, I mean, that, that part was liberating too. Yeah. That's so powerful. Um, you know, and that resonated with me when you talked about feeling weightless in the water, because that's also how I feel about growing up, going to the ocean that, you know, like the ocean is just, it was like, we can hold you, bring whatever you need, bring whatever you got. You know, we're not, there isn't going to be resistance. There isn't going to be judgment. Like the water can hold you. And that being like one of the first times that I was like, oh, I can be my full self in my full body and not have to worry about, um, you know, being rejected. Right. So the water definitely gave me that kind of affirmation and freedom and, and, and feeling safe in, in a place that can, you know, that could kill you just like you said like right you gotta, right you gotta follow certain rules <laughs> right 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 like it's 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 that it's that tension it's that push and pull um because the ocean you know i as a kid i actually me and my sisters we kind of drifted out you know to the point where you don't feel the sand on the bottom of your feet anymore so there was like a scary moment in my life when i was like okay water bring me back yeah. um but you know but definitely Aside from drifting, um, you know, there is a certain power that that holds and being able to lose yourself in a space 
um, and, and still be safe. Right. 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 Yeah. And then reconnecting with like the reality that our bodies are primarily water and the fluids that are released during like pleasure, during arousement, during desire, like those are also connected in many ways to water as well. So I really appreciate you sharing those pieces. And so I'm wondering, um, as you've been writing the book throughout your time processing what you wanted to share in the text, what are ways that you have found collective liberation with other fat Black women? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so one of the things in writing the book, I kind of talk about coming upon this community. And um, when I first started doing research in this area, um, like I was fired up about, you know, about fat liberation and about fat acceptance. But a lot of the stuff that I came upon was like super white spaces. And I was like, this is good, but it would be great to kind of stumble upon people that look like me. Um, And I stumbled upon one group and it was on Facebook. And I mean, for a while, like we would just all congregate in this group and we would talk about like everyday things, like things that, you know, we needed to talk about. And I think, you know, some of it was about, you know, I mean, some of it was about clothes, right? So where do I find this? Where do I get this? Where can I wear this? Right. And then some of the things were like things that maybe you would ask that you couldn't ask in regular spaces. Right. And so it was like, well, does everybody get rashes on your thighs when they rub together? Like, where can I find this chafing cream? All of that stuff. Right. Um, And then people would post pictures in that group and like, the type of fanfare, like I, you know, like if you didn't go anywhere, like you would get dressed just to post a picture, you know, in the group. And there was like this sense of like collective support, right? That you didn't need anybody else to tell you for the rest of the night, whether or not you look nice. Cause whatever you got in that group in that 15 minutes, half an hour, um, like it would carry you. And I think that, you know, kind of being in that space um, and being able to kind of work through our things, um, work through our issues, talk about things. I mean, it was also a learning space for us um, because we had people who were part of the LGBTQIA plus community um, who was also in that space. and, And they were willing to talk about like their experiences and educate us. And so we were all getting free together, Right. Like we were all even though it was Facebook, like, you know, at some point I had to like mute them at my job because I was like, y'all can't be posting all these things and showing up on my news feed. I'm going to get fired. Like, let's not do that. (laughs) So um, but there was a lot of just sharing and openness, vulnerability um, and just teaching. I mean, like education that just came out of that space that we were able to find freedom, you know, if not for ourselves, for one another. At times, um, you know, we had like dump posts where people were just like, let it out. If you're stressed out, put it here. And like people were just like sharing. And so, you know, to me, I was like, wow, like when community like really shows up for each other, if this is what it looks like. You know, if this is the freedom, if this is the type of liberation that we can access um, in our spaces, you know, then, then we, we, we might just be okay, right? Like, you know, we live our world, we do our four-hour shifts, our eight-hour shifts or whatever, but we would come back to this place and we would get restored and we would be renewed. Um, and if nobody else supported you, you know you had the support of your sisters. 
Um, and so that was definitely a defining space for me as it related to the collective and, and accessing liberation with everyday black folks. And I love that part too, right? It didn't have to be academic black folks. It didn't have to be black folks in high places. These are your everyday, you know, we all grew up in a space together. You know, we've all kind of experienced things. These are people, you know, from different walks of life and you didn't need accolades to belong. And so that was like a beautiful thing for me. Yeah, and I hear you saying a lot about power and how, you know, representation isn't enough as you, as you shared in your trip to Dakar. And I think a lot about how people think that representation is powerful and it is, but it's not the same as power. And what I hear you saying is that the representations that you had in this Facebook group and that we probably can see in a variety of other, like what the young people are doing on TikTok, what people did on Tumblr in the early 2000s. Those are also forms of power where people are in control of how they want to be presented, controlling the gaze as the academy might say, um, and really recognizing the power of our expression, our gender expression, our sexual expression, and also having that recognized and honored in such a public way, I think is really so so much more powerful than seeing, you know, one person on like a billboard, as you said in the book. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about that power and shift it to the misuse of power. Um, because you talk often and use a phrase called adultification bias. And I want to invite you to offer a description or a definition of what this term or phrase means for you and how you're using the phrase for people um, who may not, who may be hearing this for the first time and may not be as familiar. Yeah. So um, I think adultification bias to me um, is the bias that people have towards younger individuals. Um, there is a judgment that's kind of placed on them um, that holds them at a higher standard uh, for living their lived experience, right? Um, which is biased or it's, it's, it's undue, right? So it's not, it's, it shouldn't be. So there's this sense of judgment that happens typically to younger individuals. Um, I talk about it in the book as it relates to younger black girls, right? Um, to where they're being held accountable for things um, in ways that they're younger, as younger white girls wouldn't be, right? And I think we see this a lot. I think it shows up in a number of different ways, even in our own communities. If you're part of black community, I'm pretty sure you've heard at least once Adults talk about black girls being fast, right? Like she's fast, right? And I'm like, but she's 11. So is she really fast, right? Um, and so we see this like this push to 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 cause younger individuals to grow up or we look at them as being grown up um, more so than what they really are. Um, and I think that that shows up a lot as it relates to fat black girls a lot. Um, I mean, I think there's a, there was a lot of responsibility put on me as a kid. Um, I talk about the mammification of, of black girls and, and how, you know, we are kind of pushed into these spaces to be caretakers and, and, you know, and to watch over people. And at the time, like, you don't know why you're being pushed that space, right? Like, I can't play with everybody else. Like, I have to watch everybody else. I have to make sure everybody else is taken care of. Um, you know, if you're going to point for anybody to cook for somebody, it's going to be the fat kid. Um, so there's this, you know, there's this sense of 
pushing us to adulthood quicker, faster, and then not really allowing space or grace um, for when we make mistakes, right? Because we're also being looked at almost as adults. Um, And so that's kind of how I would define it in a roundabout way, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's, I sort of be more specific with the layers that I saw um, from my own lived experience, but also in reading your book where, yes, for me as a fat, light-skinned, you know, Black Puerto Rican girl, I definitely experienced that. But then I witnessed that continue to happen in a completely different way or add it later because of colorism and how there was this idea that, oh, because someone is darker skin or has browner skin, that means that they're supposed to be responsible for a whole other level of things, right? So I was responsible for how I was moving through the world and how, um, you know, grown-ass men were looking at me and I was supposed to be responsible for what grown men we're trying to do. But then when you add this layer of um, colorism to it and you recognize the anti-Blackness, there's just another element to not just you're responsible for what old and grown men are doing, but that you're also responsible for all these other people. You're responsible for everybody else's feelings. You're responsible for the honor of the family, if you know, for lack of a better term, and how that is deeply rooted in the mammification as you talk about. And, you know, you can't separate those two, those three pieces. Like, it's just not possible. And so for folks who are just hearing this phrase for the first time, the adultification piece, um, I just want folks to know that it's also deeply, you know, informed by an anti-Black racism. And, uh, you know, that's just real. And there's no, you know, that's just a fact. Um, And if you haven't experienced it, maybe it's because you're a lighter-skinned person like me. (laughs) And... That there are there, we all don't have the same experience, and that's okay. And so I'm wondering, how did you, as a young fat black girl, find support or comfort during that time? What were some of the, the pieces that stand out for you um, as finding solace, you know, finding comfort for yourself, either within yourself or in other ways, like this, like swimming? I would imagine would be one way, but in other forms, did anything else come up for you? Yeah, I mean, I think you. I, I think part of how I found liberation, I think, growing up as a younger kid, um, was that I fought with my mouth. So I was, I was also the kid known to have a big mouth. I had a smart mouth. Um, you couldn't say just anything to me and expect me to take it. Um, and I mean, uh, uh, that was like across the board, right? So. Um, I remember, you know, saying a few words to my dad a, a couple times. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, there was a certain point where um, the titles of who treated me a particular way kind of faded to black. And part of that, I think, for me was because my survival depended on it. Right. So I couldn't honor the fact that, like, you were my dad or my mom or my gram if what you were doing and saying to me was like, stripping the life from me, right? Like I had to make a decision about what I was going to allow and I was willing to risk like clapping back at you so that you understood like you're not going to talk to me any old kind of way. And so um, because the, the swimming program ended when school was over, like I had to find another mode, like another space of retreat. Um, And I mean, I think growing up, I became extremely comfortable with being by myself. 
um, because that was a that was a place of safety for me. Um, and so I had friends, but I had few that I kept very close, you know, close friends. Um, and then I lost myself in music. There was like a lot of drowning out. Like people call, people call me an old soul to this day. But like, you know, like Stevie Wonder helped me, um, you know, as a kid, Luther Vandross was there. Um, like the quiet storm was like my thing. Um, and it was just something that I think that I was able to kind of get lost in the music, the riffs, the sound, the bass line, all of those things. Um, and then, yeah, I emerged with like a tongue when I needed to, um, because I couldn't survive. I mean, kids are cruel. Um, and part of it, I mean, a lot of it is just out of ignorance. Like you say things cause you hear it and you repeat it. Um, and so, there wasn't like a space that I could go to. And um, I kind of talk in a book about how my mom moved us, you know, to to another another city in Pennsylvania growing up. And so I didn't have like the support, the same support that I had of my family whenever I was back in Philly, um, where there were actually fat people. Um, and so there was a lot of like me remembering the words of what my grand would say, me remembering like, you know, the presence that my aunt brought to the table and me telling myself like, it can't be all bad because they're good. So, you know, there has to be some good in this. Um, but then also, you know, showing up at doctor's offices and being like, I'll lose weight when I get ready, leave me alone and give me this paper. Right. And I'm going home. Um, but, you know, there was, there was, yeah, I, I think I fought to keep myself safe more than find an actual place of safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important piece for people to remember, especially if you're younger, if you're a parent, that these are really important things that still exist for young Black girls. Um, and so I want to shift a little bit to your conversation. You have a really extensive conversation around health and healthism. And, you know, as a fat disabled sex educator, a sexologist, um, I've been encouraging people to stop using the term health in their work. And this has been a constant form of resistance. And the question I usually get is, well, what should we say instead of healthier health? Um, And I have some of my own responses for those questions and my own suggestions, but I would love to hear how you respond to such forms of resistance. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this, I mean, especially with the development of like Javi, so the app that I, I've been working on, like I've been, and I'm happy to hear your expertise on this. Um, I've been trying to find like different ways of being able to define and describe because health, right, at least through my eyes, is holistic. Um, and so it's not just about what your body's doing or what your body looks like. Um, and so well-being is like something, but I think like the well part also kind of gets me like, eh, I don't really want to, you know, it, it, there's a value that's already added to it. Um, and so I haven't found a word or, you know, a term that I'm solely set on. I do like to give people space so that they can kind of define what they see it like for themselves. Um, because it's almost like health being this term that we've gotten so used to hearing and then wanted to dismantle and kind of break away from that and then having something else to latch on, but not knowing exactly what to latch on um, to. Um, I usually tell people that 
my my go-to usually is that health is subjective. And I think that that's something that we need to always keep in mind when we're talking about these things is that like what works for you may not work for me. Wait, what works for you may not work for me and what works for me may not work for you. And you have that liberty to define it yourself. Health is a social construct, right? And so like dismantle it, call it whatever you want to call it. Um, It's yours, own it, right? And I, I think for me, it's more about putting ownership back into the hands of individuals so that they can define whatever they want to call their well-being for themselves, um, as opposed to like coining another term, I guess. Yeah. yeah but I want to know. know. I want to know what you use. <laughs> it's so interesting because I worked with Sonia Rainey Taylor, who wrote um, a book about puberty for young girls. And um, I was the medical reviewer and, you know, you know and, and Look, Sonia Renee was our point. Like, she knew what my comments were going to be. And she was also like, the publisher wants something specific as well. And, you know, so I said, well, you get to redefine how you're using the word health then. You get to say, I know that health has been used to keep some of us out, to target some of us, to exclude some of us. And I'm using health in this way. And this is what it means in this book. Right. So, you know, I agree. Like we need to use language in a way that connects us to people and so that people can find us more easily. And so, yeah, health becomes a useful term. And for me in my field, you know, when people use health, they talk about like sexual health or they talk about healthy relationships. And for me, you know, as a disabled person, like I'm never going to be healthy. You know, like I'm already sick. You know, like so, so having me teach other young people who might also have a disability um, to try to attain something that just isn't possible for them because they're never going to be healthy. For me, is a violation of my principles. It's not in alignment with like body autonomy. So I usually tell people when talking about like relationships, think about a respectful relationship. What does respect feel like for you? What does respect feel like when you have that relationship with yourself? Um, and so really starting with the self, like what kind of relationship do you have with the identities in your body that are showing up, you know, is it one where you're feeling solid and secure? Is it one where you have questions and you're curious? Um, and then how does that impact the other relationships you want to build with other people in a particular way? Um, and usually the people who have the most resistance are people who are just like, but that's how I was trained. And I was trained 30 years ago. And it's, and, you know, and it's like the world changes <laughs> and like language is alive and, you know, words mean things to different people in a different way. So finding the language that really connects people, I think, is really important. Um, and, and you know, sometimes I'm like, go open a thesaurus. Like, <laughs> go find the word that you think speaks more clearly and eloquently to the, to the way that you want to talk about whatever it is we want to talk about. Because for a lot of people, they don't want to talk about sexual health. They're talking about something else. They're probably talking about, like, body autonomy or pleasure or, you know, whatever else comes up. Um, so, yeah, so I appreciate you sharing that because it's it's true. We need to use language intentionally um, to build community. And I think that's how people find us um, and that's yeah. how people connect with us. And um, so I want to switch a little bit to another question. Um, but a common conversation that we're ha- that we're seeing happen right now, especially in the movement for Black Lives, um, is about Breonna Taylor. And so I want to know if you believe that fat phobia anti-blackness and massage noir uh, play a role in the murder of Breonna Taylor, but also in the response to her murder. And if so, can you expand on how fatness is a part that has not been central to this conversation? So, I mean, I think that 
I think anything that has to do with black people in this country, anti-blackness is going to be there. I think that fat phobia is ingrained in anti-blackness in some ways and, and, and is a functioning component of white supremacy. Um, and I think that you don't get around that um, anytime an injustice is, is, is being done. I think if we talk about fat phobia as it relates to Breonna Taylor, I think those conversations, or at least where it shows up, is probably a lot more subtle. Um, you know, it would be interesting to see what the reports on her autopsy and different things like that will look like, kind of the remarks around um, those things. Um, I remember when I seen her picture, when they first started showing her picture, you know, that was one of the things that struck me as like, oh, she's, you know, she kind of, she, she's, she's a little chubby, right? Like, and I was like, oh, you know, for me, there was like that sense of, um, that sense of connection. Um, but I didn't see anything that was explicitly said about her, her body size. Um, but I think that, you know, when we start talking about what happens in black communities and how black people are often robbed of the justice that's due to them in this system, you're going to have anti-blackness that runs through that for sure. Um, and I, I mean, I would like to see how they respond. I mean, it took them a long time before they came out and said what they said about Eric Garner, mm -hmm. um, you know, and about his conditions. And I often tell people, and I think it's in the book as it relates to Mike Brown, right? Um, no one would have ever believed that story if that story about Mike Brown kind of turning and charging towards the bullets, um, if that story was told and it was about his friend that was with him. Right. One of the reasons why people were able to kind of sell the story of Mike Brown doing those things was because of his size. Um, and so, you know, save Breonna Taylor being sleep in bed. Right. I think that the, the conversation would have been a lot differently if she was up, if she was moving around. Right. Um, it's hard to pin a story on somebody when they're not moving. Um, but it would definitely be I would be interested to see kind of what what's written about you know in the autopsy i mean i i think i read an article today that said that they didn't release all the information around that and so for me i think that part would be interesting to see if fat phobia shows up there but anti-blackness runs through and through one of the reasons why they were there one of the reasons why they ignored the rules and all of those things because black people don't get um to be innocent before you know, they're deemed guilty. It's this idea that, you know, you have to be doing something wrong. She had to be, you know, doing these things, even though they had the evidence in front of them that said that she was not, right? Um, and so, you know, there are days like I, this country is, is something else. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, go yeah. ahead. It's, it's a, a real, real reminder that, you know, for me, that fat Black people don't have any privacy, and that fat black people can can work as much as they want and try as hard as they might to find a space of comfort, of rest. Like she was resting in her home when she was murdered. And so the reality that the the like our bodies are always up for people's conversations, critique, thoughts, opinions, touch. You know, the way that people touch me, um, I think it definitely speaks to them being like, oh, you're fat and so I could be safe with you because of the mammification of it all. And it's just like, first of all, why are you touching me? But also, like, how dare you? <laughs> and and just the reminder that, like, we never really get to have our own space in, 
in out in the open, it, but even within our own homes. And so it is a devastating reminder. Um, and those are some of the pieces that I think really I see missing from these conversations. Um, and as much as, you know, we talk about them within our communities, I think when we don't do, as you argue, a full, inclusive, intersectional understanding of the oppression and the violence that we experience, we're really not doing a good job of collective liberation or moving towards that approach either. Um, And so, you know, you wrote in the book that um, white people would rather disappear from the internet and block followers before they changed. And, you know, this is exactly how people like Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr and wherever else, uh, when you're targeted, this, these are the exact same exp- uh, uh, expectations that you're told to do if you're targeted. It's just like, just get off that platform then and people will stop bothering you. Um, and so you talk about online harassment and violence um, throughout the book in various different settings. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what are some solutions that you have found to ending online violence or to maintaining your own safety and security, either through your podcast, through any types of other work that you do online or in social media? Yeah, so I found that that the unfollow and the block button are my friends. <laughs> um, so that's kind of, you know, that's like level, like level one, right? Who do you not want to interact with? block them who do you not want to you know who do you not want to see unfollow them um that sort of thing um i think it's also um important uh or at least what i've kind of seen in in my own spaces is when you strip individuals um of their everyday arguments right and so like fat people when it comes to like people insulting fat people like the bar is extremely low and so the first thing they say is like oh you're fat ha 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 and I've watched people be like, yeah, I already know that. So what else? Right. And it's like people don't have a response outside of that because that's the thing that's supposed to be so insulting. And it's supposed to be so, um, you know, you should be so infuriated by that, that you're supposed to back down. Um, and so I think part of like disempowering language uh, is another way to kind of use and kind of using that, right? So reclaiming the term fat um, works a lot for people in, in, in certain spaces, um, you know, and then I think, you know, for me, one of the things that I've learned to do is just kind of measure, like measure your bandwidth, right? And so there are some things that you want to scroll past, Like, there are some things that you just aren't going to, you know, there are just some things that you're not going to acknowledge because what you want to address is so close to your heart that the people who post stuff or the people who say things, like, they're going to forget about it in the next five minutes, right? And you're going to be so riled up and you're going to be so angry and so upset about what they post that if you tap in, like you're going to give your energy to that and it's going to drain you. Right. And so, I mean, I think when I was like new to online spaces, I was like debating people, read this article, do this, do that, you know, check this out. And I was like, you know, and I was feeling good because I knew what I knew. Right. My knowledge was there. But then after a while, I said, Joy, them people ain't reading these articles. <laughs> like, you, they're not reading these articles like they're not interested in this. Like they want to argue. 
right? And so you got to be able to find a balance between, you know, the people that you want to sit and actually do that type of labor with, right? And the people who just want to stroke your emotions and get you riled up. I mean, to the point of like harassment, which is really interesting, is that what I find when it happens to white people, oftentimes it's not harassment, right? Right? Like it's somebody telling you like, hey, what you're doing is probably not right, right? Or you're saying something that's inaccurate and them feeling attacked and they're like, bloop, 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 right? So they turn all their stuff off because they don't want to listen to correction. Um, But for Black people um, who really do face harassment, particularly in fat Black spaces, you know, it's really interesting because um, I've been around people in the community who have been harassed and they did have to leave online spaces and they did, you know, from being doxxed and, and all of those other things, like they did have to leave online spaces. And I think sometimes that is a viable option. Um, I think sometimes we, you know, because we're so consumed by social media, we sometimes forget that there is a life outside of, right? Outside of that. And so sometimes there that is the space. Turn it off, right? And the people who are close to you probably have your phone number. The people who are close to you probably have your address, right? And that you may not need to be connected to all the other people in that space, especially if it puts your safety at risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it also goes back to that healthism that you talk about, where the concern trolling shows up a lot in online platforms. And yes. and you're right, like, white people perceive bullying to be something that to us is just stating facts. You know, we're, like when we tell you, actually, we haven't identified as Afro-American in over 40 years and stop calling us that. They think that's a form of bullying. And it's like, actually, that's a form of radical love for Black people. And why do you receive the love that we have for Black people and each other as a form of violence towards white people? Right. And so that's, I think, a question that um, I often pose to white people where I'm just like, oh, I'm showing up because I love Black people and you're showing up because you don't. And let's, you need to think about that in a particular way. Um, And so when thinking about loving Black people, uh, you know, you talk a lot about, in the book, you write a lot about um, your experience with your gram and your aunts and your family members. And the kitchen was a really intentional space for the women in your family, especially when, you know, doing church events. Uh, And so I want to know how radical is the kitchen for fat Black people? I mean, okay. Um, <laughs> I have a love affair with the kitchen. I mean, you know, there are things, and I, and it, and it's really interesting because, like, the kitchen is not just a place where food is, right? Um, you know, I think like t- to this day, like I wash my hair in the kitchen. Um, part of the reason behind that is because I'm short, and the and the you know the spigot kind of works for me. Whatever, but. There was a time because that's how I grew up whenever I was younger. My mom would wash my hair at the sink, sit in a chair, dip backwards, and then the water wouldn't get in your eye, you know. And so there's this communal thing that happens in the kitchen. I mean, I do my two steps in the kitchen, okay? Like (laughs) Motown does not sound like it does in the kitchen. Like there's some, there's magical things that happen there. Um, You know, we talk in the kitchen, we laugh in the kitchen, we share stories in the kitchen, right? And so I think that the kitchen is a space of like radical love and acceptance. Um, 
and community um, for people. And if you grew up like part of a black collective, you also know that everybody ain't allowed in the kitchen, right? So there's this certain sense of like, once you're there, right? Once you've been permitted to be there, um, being older in age um, versus being a kid, right? And what gets discussed in the kitchen, then you realize why the kitchen is such a special place, right? Um, and you're not just being called in to taste the potato salad, right? Um, you're, you're getting called in to, 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 to have wisdom. I mean, you know, when I think about the matriarchs of my family sitting at a table and like just nuggets are just dropping like from the, from the ceiling. And, and oftentimes it's not, um, it's not planned. Um, and I think that's also something that's really magical that, that happens, right? So it's not like, oh, we're going to talk about this at three o'clock, make sure you're there. It's like, no, in between songs, like, you know, somebody was pouring, uh, pouring from a fifth of gin and they decided to drop some stuff, right? And so in those spaces, like you learn how to honor what happens um, in those spaces, like, you know, it kind of blows my mind because in a lot of ways, like, you know, even when we talk about like learning how to cook and all of those things, like sometimes that don't that don't even happen in the kitchen. Right. Like they're telling you how to make peach cobbler. Everybody's sitting around the living room table like, you know, I mean, the couch and stuff is like, you know, no, you got to put the butter in here first. So you're not learning how to cook in the kitchen. There's other things that are happening in that space, that communal space that sharing of like information and wisdom and there's just a lot of love and and I think for me being in that space and being with my gram and, and my aunt and my other family members right like to me I was like that's what I want you know like when I think about family you know I I think about moments in the kitchen I think about those times when we connect with one another and we and we throw our parties and our get-togethers and everybody's in that space and we're loving each other and we're laughing at silly things you know that we'll remember 10 years from now that kind of keep us going you know after our grams and our aunts have passed on um and so whoo yeah I mean the kitchen is like a magical it's a wonderful <laughs> place um where great things happen um, at least that's been, you know, my own experience in my family. Um, so I would say that it's a, it's a it's a it's a place of radical love and acceptance, definitely communal mm-hmm. in that Absolutely. space. Yeah, and I see that happening a lot now, um, especially during the pandemic, where people are figuring out, okay, who can I have a meal with? You know, who can I like really invite into my home so that we could share a meal or and just the way that mutual aid is showing up to make sure that people have food that, you know, is nourishing to them and that they enjoy. And that's also something that I learned in my grieving where I was like, I just need to eat the food that makes me feel good or that, you know, fills me up. And it's probably not always going to be some kale and some, you know, whatever. It's probably it ain't gonna never going to be kale. Right? <laughs> not by itself. Know. Not by itself. <laughs> but, you know, like, right. and that being a real yeah. big important piece, if you're going to be committed to the, the healing work, of, of finding other pathways to heal whatever pieces of you need that kind of comfort and care, you also need to nourish your body with the things that your body has capacity to consume. And, you know, and I've been in spaces where people are like, we're going to have this really great organic, vegan, whatever meal. And people are just like, I'm still hungry. You know, like, and, and we couldn't focus because people were like, I yeah. never ate like this. And we're doing some really uh-huh. hard work and I'm still hungry. <laughs> so I learned that very quickly that like, yeah, we need to 
when we do that hard healing work, we got to, you know, consume the things that fill us and nourish us and the ways that our body understands. Um, and we can't just do a quick shift <laughs> um, right. when we're doing that right. healing work. Yeah, um, I mean, so, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. And so one uh, stood out to me because I was like, oh, this showed up in one of the responses at the end of the book. Um, but girl, you know, I'm in my mid 40s and Oprah was such a huge representation of fat black women, of not fat black women. <laughs> and then, of, you know, there's there's when I think of diet culture and how it impacts black women, I immediately think about. Oprah Winfrey. And, you know, you don't write about Oprah in your book as a cross-generational impact. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about why you chose to not include her in this particular text. You know, I think for me, Oprah, okay, so there's there's a couple things across across this um, thing, across this, this conversation. Um, so one of those things is that growing up as a kid, I did not have cable. Um, and I lived in a place, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where they gave us one channel if you did not have cable. And that channel was NBC. And Oprah did not come on NBC. So kind of looking at the influence that Oprah has had throughout the decades, I didn't have that same experience with her just off the strength of like accessibility and what it means to be poor. So that was, that's part of it. Um, I think the other part of it is that Oprah's history with her body and with her weight um, has been something that has been circulating in body positive fat acceptance spaces now roughly for the past decade. And I think it's really hard to write about her because we we all have complex identities. And, um, and I think if we are talking from a stance of what it means to be pro-fat in a sense, um, it's hard to write about her in that space. Um, and it's not to take anything away from the work that she has done. Um, but I think that, you know, part of where Oprah is right now um, is still in this weight loss, weight watchers, cauliflower pizza space. Um, and so I think if I were to write about Oprah and really do her legacy any justice, I would want to write about her in a different context. Um, just off of the strength of like, she has done a lot of work and it does need to be honored. Um, but when we talk about fatness, um, I think that that is something that, you know, and it's something that all, I mean, it's not that it's, it's, you know, it's hard to, to kind of, to understand, right. Or to grasp. Um, it's one thing to be a woman in Hollywood. It's another thing to be a black woman in Hollywood. And it's another thing to, uh, to be a fat black woman in Hollywood. So we understand the pressures of what that means and what that looks like um, and why people would decide um, to make a decision, right, to pursue weight loss. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's a hard place for me. Um, it's a it's a complex place for me. And I wouldn't want to do her legacy a disservice. In, in that manner, right? That the only reason why I'm putting her in the book is to talk about like her stance towards anti-fatness. This is Oprah Winfrey. Like, I feel like she deserves more than that. Um, and because that was the topic of the book, I said, okay, well, you know, we'll pick and choose and figure out how we want to you know, situate her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's totally fair. And 
a beautiful thought to, to be like, you know what? People are already all up in Oprah Winfrey's business. And, you know, what are you going to say that's going to be so drastically different from what other people have said over the past 30 years? Um, and then, and she's a complicated person. She's a messy human being, just like all of us. And so, yeah, what what would it mean to say, look at how... Look at how things shifted right when this happened for her or look at the path that she's paved for women to age and be child free by choice and to not be in a relationship with the state and a man or, you know, whatever it looks like. You know, I think that she really gives us a different understanding of what's possible when it comes to relationships Um, and that there's also pieces that are like and we're all under the same you know, BS of a white supremacist ideal of beauty and, and all that stuff. So I think it's a totally fair, um, you know, exclusion and an intentional one that I think is thoughtful and caring. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, you talk a lot about fashion in the book and the challenges with finding fashion that, that fits your body as a young person, which I totally, you know, understand completely. Um, And so now and today where we have different, you know, fashion designers who do recognize, oh, people over a size 18 exist. And they also take pride in their appearance. And they also have money to spend. And I should be able to to offer them things. So I'm wondering if there are any designers that you love that for any, you know, fat or super fat people watching don't know about or might want to look into, um, who do you want to share for those of us who might be seeking to improve our wardrobe? <laughs> um, so I have like one, like one brand that I like that I say, you know, would probably accommodate people across sizes. So if you're a small fat, mid size fat, super fat, um, and that's E Shakti. I have a special love for them. Like I tell you, I mean, you know, being able to like send my measurements in, like I want that dress, and I want it with longer sleeves or I want it shorter or I want it like I'm five, four, like, because here's the, okay. So here's the thing. Like, yes, I'm fat, but I'm also short. So, you know, one of the, one of the reasons why I learned how to sew growing up was because like, I need to learn how to hem pants, how to hem skirts, like everything's too long. And I needed to find a way. Then I was like, well, maybe I can make something that I like for myself. So I have this special love affair with Ishakti because they're like, we'll make it how how you want it to look. You send us your measurements, we'll make it, and it'll fit the way that you need it to look. And it's good quality stuff. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, well, I can get tailored pieces made, right? And I can... Like I said, I could specialize it. So it might be long sleeve than the, on the model, but I want short sleeve. Because that was another thing. It's like, I see this dress and like, it ain't got no sleeves. What I'm supposed to do? I can't wear it at the work. Like, give me give me something with sleeves on it. Um, and I think that, you know, some of it, like they just added some things. So they are, you know, coming, they're, they're becoming a bit more, more, more accessible as it relates to pricing. Because in the beginning, I was like, I got to pay for this and got to pay for the tailoring. Hold up, Ishakti. Hold up. So, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. That's what I call it. But 
I th- I don't know how else to pronounce it. So it's, it's, um, you're pronouncing it how it looks. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, but Ishakti is a big one. Um, and then I think as it relates to just like fat positive info, like fat positive clothing, like Fat Mermaids is another brand that like I love, and I kind of talk about Jay Mobley and like her designing um, t-shirts and stuff. And so I believe that her sizing goes up to a five X. Um, Carefree Fat Girl is another is another brand. Um, I consider myself like I'm on the cusp of, of, of a mid-sized fat. So, you know, depending on the, the time of the month, sometimes I can slide into a, a, a 3X, um, uh, slide into, you know, a, a 3 or a 4X. Um, but I think that there are other companies that, that are catching on. I wouldn't say that they are like leading Right. Um, I do like the loft. The loft goes up to a size 26. Um, and I've been able to find like some of their um, their pants and their jeans. I get them on sale when it's like 70 percent. I'm like, give me that. Give me that. Give me that. Give me that. I do that. Um, uh, J. Crew Outlet is another place that actually has um, some extended sizing. Um, and then, I mean, you have like Tort, you have Lane Bryant, you have... Um, Women within, there are people who like them because they have larger sizes. Jessica London is another place. Elos is where I go for coats because um, they have large sizing as it relates to that. Um, but I do think that there's a phasing out too. So like I feel like Torrid and Lane Bryant, they got to step their game up some because um, I feel like they've been like in a space and it's kind of been a monopoly. So people have been going to them because they are the only people that provide things. But like this shirt I have on right now is from Ashley Stewart. Um, so I'm like, you know, uh, Tort, you don't have, you know, you got to fix fix some of these things. Um, Lane Bryant, you got to, you know, you got to step up, step up your game. And then like Ashley Stewart, I kind of like their stuff too, but like their sizing is iffy. Like this shirt, I think is like a 28 or something. And like, I don't wear a 28. So it's like, yeah, you, they were like, you gotta be like, some brands are like, we have extended sizes. Like we go up to a size 32 and like your size 32 is a 24. Like just cause you change the numbers don't mean that the, like, you know what I mean? So sometimes it's, it's kind of looking through that. Um, but if I were to like, you know, Ishakti will, will sell you jeans up to a size 32. Um, and you can, you know, if you're the type of person that have that gap in the back, um, when you sit down and Ishakti will get you right. right. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so, so I appreciate, you know, I appreciate brands like that because I think that, you know, we say a lot that the, the fat community or plus size community, like we have the money. And so if you have the money and you have somebody that's willing to tailor pieces for you, like, why not do that over a Fashion Nova? No shade. But you know what I mean? Just thinking about that, where you'll have pieces that will last you longer, that can be staples that you can build on and and, and you can dress up and dress down, um, you know, for $40 or, or $29 whenever, you know, things are on sale. And they'll, they'll sell you, you know, what comes... In regular sizes, if you just want to order like a size 24 or 26 or something like that, 
But, you know, why not get it tailored if you can? Right. Yeah. Finding a good tailor. It's like the key to life in many ways. Joy, it's been such a fantastic opportunity talking with you and connecting with you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us this evening and also for writing this beautiful book that ends with a love note to fat black girls. So I invite you to just at least read that part if um, you have the book I haven't started it yet. Um, and so I just want to thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joy. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.